1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: I'm Caleb Zakarin, assistant editor of the New Books Network, and you're listening to Scholarly Communication. Today I'm speaking with Peter Baldwin, professor of history at UCLA and co-founder of Arcadia Fund, a grant-making institution focused on preservation and open access, among many other things. Peter's latest work is Athena Unbound, why and how scholarly knowledge should be free for all. Athena Unbound examines the history and debates of open access, the practice of making research and scholarly work freely available. Peter, thank you for joining me today on the New Books Network. Thank you for having me. Of course. You know, I, I think that this is a, you know, a, a great book for a number of reasons. Um, most importantly because, you know, my work at with my work at New Books Network, you know, we we care a lot about making sure that scholarly research can be accessed by anyone no matter where they are. And, and I feel like, uh, you know, you are in many ways the, you know, one of the one of the the biggest experts on the topic. Uh, So I'm looking forward to learning a little bit more about, uh, you know, the history of open access. But before jumping into the book, I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself and your background.
1: Well, um, by training and day job, I'm a professor of history, which means that, you know, I've spent a large part of my, the best years of my life in archives and libraries, and I'm sort of acutely attuned for professional reasons as well as general, what should we call political and social reasons, uh, to the idea that the more open knowledge is uh, the better off. We all are, and so seeing it locked up behind paywalls uh, hurts my, you know, professional and scholarly and human uh, sense of uh, of justice and and the right order of things.
0: But would you say that that was the main inspiration for you in writing this book—just your own personal experience, or uh, was there a particular event, story, uh, thing that you learned that that made you inspired to write this book? There wasn't a particular event. It's just that.
1: I I sort of see on a daily basis, those of my friends, colleagues, peers, and other people who don't happen to be professors of history or somehow connected to major universities with significant research libraries, you know, I know that they are simply unable to access the kind of stuff that the, the professoriate within the academic bubble, you know, has at its fingertips and takes for granted, and that seems to me significantly unfair. Add to that, of course, the fact that 99.5% of the population of the industrialized world has no access to these academic um, resources. And if you look at the global South, of course, the situation is even more extreme. So here we have this remarkable outpouring of scientific productivity that has you know, done nothing but grow, especially after the Second World War, an enormous sort of flow of knowledge and scholarship. And yet, It's reserved for a tiny fraction of of humanity, except insofar as somebody has some connection to a research library. In the old days, in the analog system, paper and binding and so forth, you you could always tell people, well, you have to go to a library like everybody else and sit there and read the books. But in this day and age of digital availability, it's even more unfair that some people have it all at their fingertips on their laptop and others are sort of cut out of
0: it altogether. You explore the idea of information or knowledge wanting to be free. So, I wonder if you could just uh, kind of elaborate on this idea: uh, what you mean by information wanting to be free?
1: Well, this is this is not my mantra, and not my idea. It is the slogan comes from elsewhere, as indicated in the book, and it is in in a sense the the founding idea of the open access movement that knowledge wants to be free. And you know, in a general sense, there obviously is something uh, to this. There's no question that over the course of human history, with the development of printing and the ever-increasing sort of availability of knowledge in the technical sense, that information has become much more freely available than it was in the past. We don't have monastic libraries with the books chained to the shelves and available only to the members of the monastery, you know, that sort of thing, as one did uh, earlier. Um, but, you know, having said that, it's also true that a great deal of information doesn't want to be free. Uh, the bulk of all scholarly scientific research is sponsored by corporations. Two-thirds to three-quarters of it is proprietary corporate research and its output. And that obviously doesn't want to be free and isn't likely to be free anytime in the immediate uh, future. We're talking really only about you know a small fraction of all scientific output when we look at university scholarship. And then it's good to keep in mind the fact that this sort of scientific output, of course, is only a tiny fraction of the overall landscape of all content. All the books that are sold, or rather that are written to be sold, the vast majority of music, especially pop music, the vast majority of films, theater, symphony, you know, whatever, everything that is, generally speaking, content, except for scholarly literature, tends not to want to be free in the sense that those who produce it, hope to make a living off of it, and therefore, you know, want to be paid for. it. Now, the brutal reality is that the vast bulk of the content that wants to be paid for isn't, and that the vast majority of content producers who would like, in an ideal world, to live off of selling their content, in fact, don't. You know, various scholarly associations, rather, authors' associations have, you know, taken surveys of their members, and the the brutal reality that they revealed is that it's a tiny, tiny fraction of authors who actually live of their writing. so you could say that even among those people who would like to live off of their content, if they acknowledge that they're unlikely to do so, they may discover that their interests are also served by making their content more easily available, rather than trying to sell it and reaping, you know, a pittance and royalties for the few books that they actually managed to convince somebody to buy. So we're talking about The kinds of people who ought to be interested in open access are fundamentally scholars who make their living in the university world, the research world, the research institute world, and who are paid for their work. And therefore, there's really no need for them to be paid again. And then possibly, and here, of course, it's much harder to define who we're talking, those content producers who recognize that they're not going to live off
0: their content and might be interested in a larger audience rather than more royalty. You get into a little bit of the history of copyright. I was wondering if you could give some background uh, just to sort of set the scene before we sort of get into what the current uh, state of affairs is for copyright and open access.
1: Well, copyright is the system that protects intellectual property. And it started in the early 18th century and then developed um, rapidly in the 19th century. Um, And effectively what copyright has done is allow those who produce ideas and content writings, paintings, you know, whatever it is that intellectual property uh, consists of, it allows them to attempt to sell what they now legally possess. Before the year of copyright, in effect, they couldn't possess their own products because anyone could take them and copy them, rip them off, and there was absolutely no legal mechanism to prevent them from doing so. So copyright, in that sense, made content producers property owners. Now, the problem in the beginning, copyright gave a limited protection Allowing them to sell for a short period of time. And then after that, the content went into the public domain and it was available for anyone to use anywhere in any way. In the beginning, copyright law protected content for 14 years. If you wanted to, you could usually renew it, so maybe 28 at the outside. And after that, it went into the public domain. The problem is that copyright was lengthened increasingly over the course of the 19th and early 20th centuries to the point we are now, where a standard copyright term is life of the author plus 70 years. So we're talking, you know, unless you die at the age of Mozart in your 30s, we're talking well over a century worth of protection. And since the reality for most content is that it loses its commercial its commercial attractivity, its so commercial um, potential shortly after being launched onto the uh, market, in fact, what we're doing is locking up content that nobody is paying for any longer after the first few years after publication, after dissemination. We're locking it up for, you know, well over a century where nobody can do anything with it, even though nobody's paying for it. So it's not that it's worthless. It's worthless in a commercial sense, in a narrowly commercial sense. It's, of course, has a worth to those who want to read it, but we've locked it up in the sort of the, you know, the completely quixotic expectation that it retains value for a long time. Now, for those few works that are lucky enough to in fact retain value for over a century, obviously there's nothing against those who produce it—the publishers and the authors and mm-hmm. the rights holders in general—from marketing and and you know and deriving the value that they've produced. I've got nothing, and I don't think anybody in the sort of what we call the reasonable of an access world has anything against people who have produced something of value that maintains its value from continuing to do so. But let's be clear: we are talking about an infinitesimal amount of the total content landscape here. And the rest of it, because of this need to protect a tiny fraction, is sitting there locked up when it could be available for use um, by anyone. And that seems like an enormous downside for comparatively small upside.
0: So for, you know, present day authors and scholars who are listening to this conversation and they're interested uh, in open access, but are also concerned with, you know, the prospects of making a living, uh, you know, how can authors think about making a living simultaneously while also pursuing open access. Uh, is, is there a way to make this work without necessarily uh, holding some sort of university position or another job?
1: That is a tough one. You know, when, when this issue is discussed uh, in the music world, um, you know, the, 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 usual approach has been, well, you know, it's not just selling records or whatever the you know, downloads these days, um, you know, you can also tour and, and that sort of thing. Uh, For people who, you know, write plays or novels or poems, that's not quite the same. Uh, There is no, you know, real alternative source of of income, you know, public readings, I guess, but who pays for that? And so it's a very tough question for those who produce um, the kind of content that they want to sell commercially. For scholars, I I don't see the big deal because scholars are paid, and many of them are paid uh, not only decent, but, you know, by good wages for doing what they do especially those who are the ones who produce a lot of content. They tend to be rewarded within the scholarly system, and it's very hard to see why exactly they you know, need to be rewarded again. Having said that, I also want to add that there are very few scholars within the system who actually either expect any royalties or can make any pretense to earning any royalties. We are talking about a tiny fraction of the overall professoriate. You look at science professors, for example, scientists, within the university world, who are the bulk of all university faculty and researchers of these days, they have never sold their content. Scientific journals, ever since their establishment, first in the you know, 16th, early 17th century, have never paid for content. They publish in order to gain the recognition of their peers, to you know, claim priority for their discoveries, uh, generally sort of to be lauded for their insight and their acumen, and uh, not not for the money at all. They get paid their salaries. Now, obviously, some of them produce discoveries that are patentable and that are valuable on the market. But for them, there's a sort of a separate ecosystem whereby insofar as they produce something patentable and therefore valuable, they tend to split the proceeds with their university. And, you know, in a few cases, they leave the university altogether and then, you know, become entrepreneurs in in effect. But most of them share the profits with the university. And those kinds of of, of scientists are, you know, again, a small minority of engineers, medical scientists and, and people like that. The bulk of of, of of university scientists are not paid anything other than their salaries and are content with that. And the same goes fundamentally for the social sciences and humanities, with a few exceptions. And indeed, I'd be willing to argue that the biggest exception is my own field, uh, history, which is one of the rare spots where academic historians can also hope to produce commercially viable products of their own thinking and uh, uh, learning, you know, that the public wants to read. You know, academic philosophers, nobody buys books, you know, written by them. Academic sociologists, forget it. You know, political scientists, maybe, if it's sort of presidential biography or something like that, or about, you know, current politics. But on the whole, really, historians, and then that, that even means, you know, historians writing about, you know, Winston Churchill, the Second World War, Napoleon, the Civil War, you know, the, you know, those pot potboiler topics that still sell books. Again, we're talking about a tiny minority of one small fraction of one part of the academic world who have any expectation ever of writing a book that might bring in some royalty. So, this is, you know, to tailor
0: everything according to them would really be sort of doing so for the exception and not for the rule. So, yeah, with some of that that uh, background in mind, uh, you know, I was wondering if you, if you could talk specifically about the just kind of history of the open access movement. Um, and you know what? Where you sort of see the open access movement evolving to now?
1: Ah, uh, well, the history. Open access requires digitality, requires digital technology. So you know, before digital technology could sort of start reproducing, well, really everything, and before that was then in turn spreadable through the internet, there was no ability to be open access. In the in the analog world, you still had to meet the physical cost of printing, reproducing, distributing, binding, shelving, shipping, you know, all the sort of everything that went into sort of the, the physical media that 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 stuff was transmitted through. Uh, with digitality, all that evaporates. The first copy of anything still costs money to produce, but the last copy, copy at the margin is effectively costless to produce and to disseminate. And that's what makes open access uh, possible. So it's not until, you know, what, the 1990s or so when these things come together, that there's anything to discuss. No. after that, however, things slowly start heating up and the possibility of open access sort of gradually unfolds. Let me add one proviso, which is to say that there are certain professions that were doing effectively what open access dissemination is now doing already in the analog era. And that is, for example, physicists who were back before there was anything like the internet, were Xeroxing copies of their preprints, of their articles before they submitted them to journals and were sending them a great cost and, you know, an aggravation through the postal system to their colleagues and asking sort of for them to, you know, comment and so forth. And by the time a paper was finally published in the journal, effectively everyone in the field had already read it in preprint on paper, having arrived, you know, with a stamp and an envelope and that sort of thing. That now is what is going on in many of, of the academic disciplines instantaneously, effortlessly, and, you know, brilliantly, by use of, the, of of the internet, but the idea of sending what effectively is not yet a printed object around to your colleagues existed already before digitality, but it was sort of turbocharged by the onset of the, the digitality. And we're now in the situation where you know everybody has broadband. Those of us of a certain age can remember you know dial-up modems and stuff like that when it was still hard to get stuff. Attachments, you know, I can remember attachments being you know, one of the glories of the internet when suddenly you would send a paper or a chapter or something like that through the internet. We take it now completely for granted. That wasn't always so. But, you know, we, the, the, the internet is now at a, at a stage where it is effortless to send stuff to your colleagues. It is costless and effortless to post something that you write up on the web for the entire world to read. The entire world may not want to read it, but insofar as it does, it's up there and they can access it. It can access it. Uh, as freely and costlessly as it pleases. So we are now in a kind of digital nirvana where everybody can be connected to every bit of information that we put up there. And so the bizarre contrast that we live with is that all this is possible, and yet things are still so locked down. And it's sort of the squaring the circle that the open access movement is about. It is, you know, how to pay the costs of dissemination for material whose costs of production have already been met. Nobody's talking about the cost of producing this material. That's a totally separate issue. You know, in the humanities and social sciences, people tend to do it largely under their own steam with the salaries that they're paid. In the finances, there are huge scientific budgets that pay for the production of content. You know, in America, for every scientific article published, and globally, there are about two or three million published every year every scientific article published has on average almost $300,000 of scientific research funding behind it. So there's a huge amount of money invested in every scientific article that's out there. The cost of actually transmitting those articles freely to the world is as little as $10 if you're talking about posting it onto some kind of preprint uh, repository, and as much as nine dollars or $10,000 if you're talking about publishing open access in one of the most exploitative journals, science or something like that. But anyway, even at $10,000 a pop, it's a tiny fraction of the cost of producing the research behind that article in the first place. So Open Access is really only talking about how to meet the costs of disseminating the information whose costs for production have already been met by governments and other third-party funders.
0: Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. You know, as far as like specific examples are concerned, you know, who are some of the most important distributors and disseminators of free information? You know, are, are there any particular websites or particular organizations that you would tell someone who's maybe living in a place where they can't access uh, or you know they don't have a school affiliation, but they they still want to engage. Like where where should they go to learn? Do you mean as a reader or as a writer? Both. Yeah. Uh, maybe first as as a reader, and then second as a writer.
1: Well, okay. So as a reader, um, if you can't, if if you don't have whatever it takes to get into the digital riches of academic institutions and research libraries, you don't have much choice. Some public libraries subscribe to some databases. You can get into them. You know, The New York Public uh, is a major research library. And if you go to the New York Public, you can get into lots of things you couldn't otherwise. But your local branch library is you know, highly unlikely to get you into JSTOR or HeinOnline Online or any of the other big social science databases that I know about. God knows what it's case with other um, databases. So there, there's not much to be done. You still have to go into a research library and the, that means you have to have some sort of connection or affiliation. Or now, the result of that is that there are these pirate sites like Sci-Hub and Z-Library and others that make pretty much the bulk of scientific literature available for free anywhere in the world. They are, of course, in violation of every conceivable copyright law. Some of them exist, uh, like Sci-Hub, um, you know, somewhere in the East Block or what we used to call the East Block. I mean, Belarusia Be- or someplace like that, I don't know quite Sure, where where it is, others like Z Library or sort of play whack a mole, and every time they get shut down in one place, they pop up in another, and anyone can go there and download lots of stuff. And the interesting little or the dirty little secret of the modern academic world is that lots of academics have also inhaled in that sense, because even people who have access to uh, their own university libraries, you know. To get into them these days, you have to go through, you know, climb these endless, sort of jump these endless hoops of, of two-stage verification or whatever to finally get into the library and then you can sort of look at the stuff. So a lot of people just go to Sci-Hub or, uh, mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, just as a matter of convenience. So, you know, the biggest, the the absolute largest number of users of Sci-Hub come from China, uh, which makes sense because the Chinese don't have access to all the stuff, but the second largest uh, are Americans, many of whom, no doubt, have perfectly good access to this stuff, but just can't be bought. And therefore so so this is of course something that uh, you know if you write about these things um you have to sort of be polite and say well of course these are illegal and no one should do this um, but the reality is that there's no way of avoiding it seems to be the conclusion that the scientific publishers have largely brought this upon themselves by virtue of being almost impenetrable that you can get into their riches if you have some affiliation but that's a tiny fraction of humanity and if you don't then you bump up against the paywalls and the paywalls are grotesque i mean I, i'm sure you've seen examples of this but you know you go to some some media source that charges a reasonable um uh, rate for for its uh, content like spotify or um apple music or netflix or something. you know not netflix or is like whatever it is these days you know 12 bucks for 10,000 movies so you know? it's a really good deal as a lending library goes a lot of content for a reasonable price and people seem to be willing uh, 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 to pay, f- pay for it. But if you go and try to get an academic article and you bump into the paywall and then you then look at what it is that you have to pay to be allowed to read it, it's just bizarre. The My favorite example, it's in the book there somewhere, is that it is, it, it, it's very common practice that it costs more to read the review of a book than it does to buy the book itself. And when you've gotten to that point, you just realize, you know, the publishers are just effectively making it impossible for any normal person to get in. And then you wonder, why do they go to the illegal websites, um, to the pirate sites? It seems pretty obvious to me.
0: Yeah, I remember, I, I won't name them, but I was speaking with a, a professor who told me that they were uh, really thrilled when they saw that two of their books were on LibGen because it had, it meant that they finally made it. You know, that's very interesting.
1: I'm I'm delighted to say all my books um, are on Psyop and it's a mark of uh, it's it's a mark of some kind of prestige I, I assume it means that somebody may not be more than one or two people out there but has thought it worthwhile to do to put it up there and um, i couldn't be happier
0: should you know should like indie bookstores feel threatened by open access or do you think that ultimately you know more people reading books regardless of if they're paying or not will still help the the general community of readers well a couple of points on that
1: what percentage of indie bookstores content is scholarly monographs i'm guessing pretty small right yeah very so, very little oh, not almost. Yeah, right so, so that's not really what we're talking about i mean i don't get me wrong I, I try to you know belabor this point in the in the book i am talking in the book only about scholarly works so that means scientific articles and scholarly monographs which are a little harder to define and there's a lot of overlap with some sort of commercial content i have nothing against novelists and poets and so forth and earn a living from their books and I think they ought to and I think they ought to sell them in bookstores and yes, it's lovely to go to an indie bookstore if you're lucky enough to have one nearby uh, to buy these um, and just, you know order them off of Amazon or whatever it is that people generally do these these days. And the other question is what does open access actually do for physical book sales? And there the jury is out as far as I can see, uh, there are you know a lot of people argue that, that having a book that's open access actually stimulates interest and you end up selling more copies of the physical book than you would had it not been the case. And publishers, you know, will tell you, oh no, that's not the case, you know, our sales are actually absolutely decimated. Now, this recent, uh, you know, the recent court case, Hachette, uh, against the Internet Archive, some of the the data that was provided there, it obviously didn't tip the court's opinion uh, against the way that it went, but some of the data there Came from the University of North Carolina Press during the COVID epidemic when they joined uh, the sort of spirit of things in the Open, in the Internet Archives, Digital Emergency Library, and put some of their, or possibly all, I'm not quite sure the details of their monographs up available freely, um, whether for reading or for download. Again, I'm not quite sure, but in any case, their sales during the epidemic went up, even though they were so whatever the mechanism, whether it's people had a look at the book and then said, oh, I sort of actually want that and then bought it, or whether it's just two parallel and, but you not know, connected events, I don't know. But they didn't actually come out worse, even though they opened up their lists to a certain degree. So it seems to me this is something that, you know, we need a big case on this, you know, does open access uh, stimulate or suppress sales of of physical books? It would be extremely interesting to know.
0: Yeah, absolutely. No, I... I... Yeah, I would also be really really curious to see what the results would be and I think my expectation was that it is that it wouldn't because I'm definitely a person that have has take, you know, made use of open access and I think I buy a lot of books too. So uh and I will and I frequently will buy books and I also buy the audiobook and I'll get the uh, get a torrent of the same book so that I'll have three copies and I've paid for it twice. Um it, it, sort of uh, you know looking towards the you know the current moment and also the future because you know not not only are you a historian of, of open access but you also uh are you know person actively involved in it um you know where, where do you sort of see the future of open access uh what what are your, your your hopes and dreams and maybe also your fears well I think open access is inevitable
1: in the long run and I think we're getting there quicker than we would have imagined let's say five years but and there's a big caveat here the way we're getting there is that the scientists have basically managed to sort of jiggle the system so that it works on their behalf. And they've done so in so far as scientific publishers have raised their rates. They did so back in the 70s and 80s before digitality at all in what we usually refer to as the serials crisis when they raised their subscription fees and gutted research library acquisitions budgets that had to be drained off towards uh, the scientific publishers leaving very little left for buying academic uh, monographs in the in the humanities and social sciences and that they've just continued into the open access era so that instead of using open access and digitality as a means of cutting costs which should be perfectly possible for reasons we come back to the scientific publishers have just maintained their prices except that instead of calling them subscriptions for journals they now call them article publishing fees or charges and the money is largely the same the profit margins of those publishers who do really well you know 30 to 40 percent haven't changed much in the open access era so as far as they're concerned open access is fine so long as the article publishing charges bring in profit margins that are more or less the same as their inflated subscription charges and that seems to be the case at the moment the result is that for scientific literature it is all moving quite rapidly towards open access and i think in another five years we'll all be completely open access But the library budgets that pay in the old days for subscriptions, nowadays they are taken away by deans who need to pay the article publishing charges for their faculty. Instead, those resources are no longer available to pay for humanities and social science output. And so the real problem with open access is not so much taking care of the scientific output, that is sort of happening already. The real problem is, what are we going to do now that we don't have the money we used to? for humanities and social science output, what are we going to do to make that open access as well? And there, you know, it's it's sort of a hodgepodge of sort of small dorm um, solutions that have been put together. There are lots of little presses that have sprung up that turn less than, you know, the the, the normal conventional academic presses uh, to publish a book that are cheaper in that sense. There are journals that are been set up, sometimes diamond open access so that the author doesn't pay because they have funds from somewhere else, the donor or something like that, uh, libraries, you know, have sort of colluded, colluded, that's the wrong word, it, it sounds like a criminal conspiracy, uh, have cooperated so that, you know, it's, instead of a uh, hundred of them, you know, paying for the book, they get together and, and pay the open access publisher that the open access charge for the book and then make it free for everybody in the world, not just having a library. So, you know, there are ways of doing this, but the problem is it's all sort of, it's small scale, it's unpredictable. It's a little unclear. Many of these publishers, because they're small scale, are they going to be there in ten years? And if they're not, where are those files? You know, with the open access books that they published, or who's taking care of them? It's all a bit unclear. And and I think what we need, what we obviously need, is a, a great deal more regularity, and predictability in the humanities and social science end of open access.
0: That, that's a, a really great point about this kind of the the bifurcation in between the different uh, ways. In which you know science versus you know social sciences humanities might um, you know might be operating in the open access uh, field. Uh, you know my final question for you is you know in addition to you know going out and, and, and getting checking out your book Athena Unbound, uh, which I will say of course is is an open access book, so uh, people should should have no problem getting it. Uh, is there, are there any other resources that you might recommend that professors or other scholars? Uh, might go to to learn a little bit more and uh, maybe get involved in some capacity. John, yeah.
1: well, and you asked me this beforehand; I could have thought about it. But on the top, off the top of my head, um, the best I can do is my 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 friend and colleague John Wilenski has also just published uh, a new book on on open access. The title of which I don't remember off the top of my head, but available. Oh, i it in the show notes. Please, okay, on open access, MIT Press. Um, a very interesting; sort of more theoretical. Approach to how to solve the problem. He has a, a solution that's extremely intriguing that basically applies the kind of leasing model that we have already for music in to to books. So that 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 you know if if they're not available on the open market at a reasonable price, then you sort of compulsory license them uh, in a way that if you you know want to record somebody's song that has already been recorded, you have the right in copyright law to do so, and they and the original composer. Ah, uh, songwriter can't do anything uh, about it. His idea is to apply similar model, legal model to academic literature. Just you know, an intriguing idea. We'll see
0: where where it goes. So yeah. So to John Walensky uh, on on open access. Uh, well, Peter, thank you so much for being a guest on the New Books Network. It was great speaking with you. Thank you for having me.